everyone, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. As always, uh, I'm Nell, one of your co-hosts. I'm a, an engineer previously at Chef, about to be at Mozilla, and fantastic to be here with all of you today. With me, as always, is my co-host, Chuck. Chuck, how's it going? It's going well. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. We've set up a whole bunch of these from uh, uh, KubeCon, and uh, I think this is like the last one that's not at a regularly scheduled time. So we're going to get back to normal soon. Today's podcast is sponsored by UpCloud. Is your website running slow? Supercharge your hosting performance by deploying on the world's fastest cloud infrastructure. UpCloud offers superior cloud servers and advanced scalability, instant backup snapshots, and easy to use control panel. Fully featured API and a ton of integration options and managing partners. Pricing starts at only $5 a month with enough performance options to host any website or app all backed by 24-7 live in-house support. You can get started today with a free trial using promo code DevChatTV at upcloud.com slash signup. They'll give you a $25 credit to get you going. Remember, upcloud.com slash signup with promo code DevChatTV. And with us today is our fantastic guest, Brent Schroeder. Brent, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. I'm glad to be here and excited uh, to about our talk. Awesome. Well, I know the topic uh, we are going to discuss today is the quest for frictionless DevOps. But I'm wondering, uh, before we kick off to that, can you tell us a little bit more about your role at uh, SUSE? Certainly. So I'm the global CTO for SUSE, and that essentially involves trying to keep an eye out on on everything that's going on in the the IT industry and how that might affect us and then helping work on shaping our overall strategy and, and viewpoint on the on the topics and the markets that we're planning to participate in. Sounds great. And I know uh, SUSE has a big focus on open source. We are 100% open source. All of our products are, are open source and we do an full uh, in the clear open source development model. Oh, that's interesting. So, you know, none of our development occurs behind the scenes or includes uh, proprietary uh, uh, elements to our releases. So I cool. think that makes us unique and a, and a very compatible and, and consistent uh, model and, and uh, view for our customers. Yeah, it's interesting when you compare it to some of the other flavors of uh, Linux out there. Um, you know, I, I worked at a university when I was uh, early in my career and we had we had SUSE um, servers and uh, Red Hat was what we primarily used. And uh, yeah, a lot of the Red Hat stuff, you know, you could you could go and get like Fedora or something, but more Red Hat Enterprise Linux. But if you wanted the, you know, full on Red Hat experience, you had to pay for it. And a lot of that stuff was closed source. And so it's interesting when you're talking about this, that, you know, it's all open. And there are a few others, too, that seem to be, you know, mostly open or completely open as well. But yeah, what what made what makes SUSE want to follow that model as opposed to, you know, some of the other models where there's some monetization or, you know, focus around different aspects of Linux that aren't uh, the open source approach? You know, I think it goes back to just the original founders and the culture of SUSE uh, in that that was the, the way we started it and was really the the mantra of open source. And what open source was all about is to be able to collaborate in the open uh, and 
enable everybody to contribute and, and, you know, we still monetize uh, on the service model, right? Uh, but we don't uh, create proprietary extensions, et cetera, to, to do that. And what that doesn't uh, also doesn't do, you know, from our customer standpoint is it doesn't lock our customers into a, a specific way of doing things. And our customers definitely appreciate that. We hear that uh, loud and clear from them. Oh, nice. And how do, how do you think that open source technology fuels a DevOps culture at SUSE or fuels a DevOps culture uh, in your customers? Yeah. yeah, I think it just in general, you know, if you think about open source and again, the philosophy of it, uh, you know, I think DevOps and open source go very well together. It's about, you know, collaboration and, and working together to accomplish a goal. So I think it's the culture that really helps kind of fuel and be a driving force uh, for DevOps. You know, see the vast majority of the companies uh, that I interact with that are kind of going down that DevOps model uh, and implementing it. Uh, it often starts with open source groups and, and open source projects. Uh, you know, I think they just go hand in hand uh, together with each other. And I know uh, SUSE is partnered with the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. Can you tell us a little more about that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, we work uh, very closely with Cloud Native Computing Foundation as well as as many others. Uh, and I think those are, are key elements of the DevOps momentum uh, and making that uh, go forward. So, uh, you know, we have a distribution, you know, beyond Linux, uh, we have a distribution based on, on multiple Cloud Native Computing Foundation uh, projects, uh, most specifically in the container space. Uh, with uh, cryo containers, uh, where uh, our cloud app, or our container as a service platform uh, is comprised of uh, cryo containers and Docker containers, as well as Helm and Kubernetes. And now, we package that all up container? in a. What is a cryo container? So that's, the, that. so that's the yeah, that's the open source um, communities uh, version. So Docker really got it started. Uh, back at the beginning of the decade, uh, and then the, the open source community kind of took that and ran with it and, and built a essentially a, a runtime uh, that was was built by the community and and fully open source. So uh, just an alternative to Docker as a as a container runtime. Got it. Interesting. So so we've taken and, and taken those projects as well as others that we're you know continuing to work on and. Uh, you know, across the spectrum of the container ecosystem and Kubernetes ecosystem, you know, to build our uh, container as a service platform uh, and and make that available and just continue to mature and, and advance that. So, uh, so yes, we're active in in uh, uh, the cloud native uh, computing foundation. Cool. And I got to ask, I was just looking because I want to put a note about cryo containers in the show notes. Uh, how do you spell that? Because I searched for C-R-Y-O containers yeah. and I got a bunch of things yeah. for cryo, cryogenics, uh, which I don't yeah. think is what we're looking for um, here. C-R-I-O. Got it. All right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting to me uh, with the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, how it really, it seems like it really is at the forefront of combining open source practices with DevOps practices. We see a lot of DevOps related mm-hmm. technologies coming out of them. Yep. Yeah. They, they either create them or they adopt them, right? Yeah. The, you know, one thing that uh, kind of expanding it, and it's, it's not in the cloud native computing foundation, but we're also a member of the 
of uh, the Cloud Foundry uh, Foundation, uh, which is a, a PaaS environment that we also have a, a distribution of in our, our cloud application platform. Uh, and you know, we see the the coming together of the uh, CNCF and, and Cloud Foundry, you know, as a, a real catalyst to to take DevOps into a, at the to really the next level. Uh, and and this notion that I and that we teed up as a as a title of that quest for frictionless DevOps, um, I think really starts to to manifest itself when you bring those two together. So it's it sounds like you've kind of got your fingers in a lot of different pies. Um, what's kind of the overarching theme? I mean, you're talking about frictionless uh, DevOps. Is is that mm-hmm. the overarching theme, or is it you know a particular outcome that you want for open source DevOps, et cetera, et cetera, or yeah, where, where are you trying yeah, to do? I think the, the overall, what we're trying to do is, is provide a, an enterprise class experience or set of capabilities for application delivery. So it's really about, you know, companies being able to, to deliver applications in as an agile and rapid uh, manner as possible. And, you know, some of the challenges, I think, is as you look at DevOps and, and see some of the, the early on projects, uh, and when I talk to customers, some of the challenges that arise is that, you know, it can't be just about dev. Now, that's one of the things containers, right, enabled and all the excitement in the, in the early part of, of the last, I guess it's now the last decade since we're in 2020, is that, you know, the developers could, uh, as containers came about, developers could, you know, rapidly uh, develop new uh, features and functionality and, and push and release that, you know, in a, in a service, microservices model. Um, and that sounds fantastic. And developers, you know, love that philosophy. The challenge that we've seen is that as you try to scale a model where, developers are just doing that without coordination and collaboration with operations is uh, the consistency and governance that's necessary at, a, at an enterprise shop. You know, do, you, do I have all the security practices in place? Do I have uh, all the scaling rules implemented consistently? Can I govern uh, how much resource is being used? Is the availability applied consistently? Do I know that I've got availability practices uh, in applications that are becoming mission critical applications versus just a, you know, a, a light web service. Uh, and so how do we bring kind of the ops back to, to DevOps in this, this whole space of, of containers and, and what containers enables and be able to take advantage of the, the value proposition that containers bring, such as the lightweight and the rapidly scale up and down, um, but still have some consistency in governance. And that's where we see bringing Cloud Foundry and, and the, the container world together uh, is a great opportunity because Cloud Foundry um, with our, our cloud application platform, uh, you know, operations uh, teams can go into Cloud Foundry and put together the uh, policies define what the policies are for deployment, uh, for scaling rules, for uh, application placement, for dev and test place uh, workload placement, uh, 
And now the developers don't have to go in and write Kubernetes code. All they do is push an application and based on uh, their roles and, and access rights and, and what the application is, that application gets placed with the appropriate scaling roles, with the appropriate security and network settings, all automatically set. So, it, you know, we think that's kind of really, maybe for the first time, really bringing dev and ops together in, a, in that frictionless uh, manner where the, the application developers can call on resources, can deploy applications um, without having to code infrastructure. Yeah, I, I definitely see the appeal because it seems like in a lot of cases, ops cares mostly about uh, security and consistency and the developers don't want to worry about it. And so if you get that that ease of deployment or that ease of management, then everybody kind of gets what they want to some degree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly the way we see it, it, it going. And, you know, as I talk with customers, uh, as mentioning before we started, I spend most of my time on the road. So, and much of that is, is with customers. And as they all, everybody is, is experimenting and working with containers. You know, some have it in production, uh, but the majority of them are still bringing up their, their initial projects. And as they do that, they start to come across some of these challenges and, and their questions are all centered around that is how do I govern and manage containers? How do I know where a container came from? Uh, can I manage its chain of custody? Can I, as, as developers and, and applications teams want to join in and I go from you know, one development project and, and 20 developers to, you know, 15 or 20 projects and hundreds of developers. How do I ensure that, that it gets done consistently uh, between development teams? Um, and I'm not having to train, you know, every developer on, on writing Kubernetes scripts, because uh, that's probably one of the hardest skill sets in the industry to find right now and is, is highly sought after and, and fought over. Uh, and so, you know, many companies have a, a challenge hiring um, those skill sets that they you know, have a, a big team of Java developers or, or Python developers and, and want to be able to apply those and make those productive as possible. Uh, so being able to take advantage of containers um, without having to teach everybody Kubernetes, uh, you know, is a huge productivity boost uh, to the organization. I like that a lot. Uh, I'm on the board of a nonprofit called Operation Code, and we made a decision a few years ago to run, to run our organization website in Kubernetes. Uh, the reason we did that was it's a very marketable school skill set. We are teaching uh, recently um, recent military veterans uh, software engineering skills and technology skills. The problem we found is the learning curve with using Kubernetes is so great. Any beginning developer who wanted to contribute to our open source organization website also had to learn Kubernetes, which I think is too much to ask for someone who is a very beginner developer. Now, if they're interested, I'm happy mm -hmm. to take them through the ins and outs of Kubernetes, how it works, how you change it, et cetera. But I think when we're onboarding someone new to the technology world or new to a DevOps culture, et cetera, it's important to have just some compartmentalization so they can learn one set of technologies, then another, then another, and figure out where they want to specialize. Yes. 
Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Yeah, I think you're, you're, you encounter the same experience that, that many out there every day are encountering is how do I bring my teams up to speed? Uh, and you know, our philosophy is that not everybody needs to, to know it, you know, get a, a core set of, of operations and even developers that understand it so that the developers and the operations team can work together in defining what those policies are, but then codify those policies rather than have, uh, you know, teams, you know, coding it uh, uniquely by application or writing custom uh, pipelines and, and then needing to do that, not just at one project, but two projects and 10 projects and a and hundred projects. And that's where the scale, you know, really comes to play, uh, is to be able to, to apply the agility and CICD at a, at a very large scale. So how do you see, you mentioned uh, earlier in the show, we're, we're at a new decade now. How do you see microservices yeah. and Kubernetes and SUSE evolving uh, in this new decade? Yeah, it's going to be an exciting one. Uh, you know, it's always hard to predict. It seems like every decade moves faster and farther than the last. You know, I think in, over the next uh, few years, we're just going to see a, a, a rapid growth and maturing. You know, in the in the Kubernetes and container space, there's still a significant amount of maturing that needs to happen, uh, and, uh, and I think we'll see that. And it's not just with Kubernetes itself, but it's really about the ecosystem. Um, that goes around Kubernetes. You know, it's the the, the networking uh, aspects of it, service mesh uh, coming into play and and uh, becoming more integrated into offerings and and the service mesh itself uh, maturing. Uh, the security uh, ecosystem, you know, getting fully adopted and, and uh, wrapped into uh, the container and Kubernetes uh, ecosystem. Uh, and then more with, with storage. Storage still has a ways to go uh, in persistent storage and, and enabling uh, the, the easier building of persistent um, applications. So I think we're just going to see the whole ecosystem mature uh, where that becomes, um, if it's not already, you know, I see it on the horizon as that being the predominant containers and, and uh, CICD being the predominant uh, development model um, out there for the vast majority of applications. Uh, and I think virtual machines and the virtual machine ecosystem will be around for a long, long time. Uh, and we'll need some coexistence. That would be another thing that'll, that'll happen is right now, you know, it's really com two completely different tool sets that manage, uh, seems odd to call it legacy, but the legacy virtual machine ecosystem um, and a different tool set altogether to manage the container ecosystem. You know, and, and our customers are asking us, uh, you know, can you converge these? Because, you know, I don't want to live, I don't need, want to train my, my staffs on two entirely different tool sets. Uh, so looking for some convergence uh, between that, I think we're starting to see that uh, in some of the, the developments that, that not only SUSE is doing, but, but other uh, companies are doing. Uh, and so I think we'll see that uh, uh, continue as well. 
Yeah, we had some conversations about um, multi-cloud setups when we talked to Bob Quillen from uh, Oracle. And, you know, mm -hmm. it was the same kind of thing, right? It's, okay, well, everybody does it a little bit different, but I don't want to have to manage AWS the AWS way and Azure the Azure way. And so it sounds like, you know, yeah, some of these other systems, it's like, yeah, how do we get this to converge to the point where I don't have to worry about what infrastructure I'm running on. It just works, you know, no matter where I'm running it or what I'm doing with it or, you know, who really has to think about it. And I, I, I like that. And then I like the ideas too of just, yeah, making it more approachable and solving some of these issues in some of these areas that we, we tend to not think about until we run into some of these hiccups. Yeah. You know, you bring up some, some good points there that uh, about consistency across a broader ecosystem. Yeah, you know, I spent uh, much of uh, the 2000s and, and early part of uh, the, the teens on this whole notion of hybrid cloud and uh, trying to create hybrid cloud solutions and, and really discovered that, you know, it was largely an intractable problem because all of the clouds released their own services uh, with their own interfaces, uh, all their own management tools. Uh, the on-prem, all the on-prem technology was doing the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. And so coming up with a, a way to consistently manage a, a hybrid ecosystem of, of uh, cloud and virtualized resources uh, was essentially impossible. What I'm hoping to see on, that I'm seeing on the horizon and, and hoping that the industry as a whole can continue with, uh, and actually I call upon our customers to, to hold us accountable, hold the industry accountable for this is with Kubernetes um, and containers. I think for the first time in, in history at this, at this part of the stack, we've got the majority of the industry with a consistent implementation. You know, we've got Kubernetes in, in Azure and in Amazon and in Google, and you know, we use it on-prem and, and now uh, you know, VMware is using it on-prem. And so from an application orchestration, there's an opportunity for consistency across all of these assets, you know, which is, is, like I said, I think it's unprecedented uh, in you know, the, the industry. Uh, so I'm hoping that that continues on forward. Um, we're doing some work, uh, quite a bit of work in in being able to manage a hybrid and, and multi-cloud uh, environment. If we go back to um, you know some of those projects, we we started uh, a project called Stratos uh, in the Cloud Foundry uh, community, and we're continuing to expand Stratos's capabilities. But Stratos is essentially uh, a, a graphical user interface uh, for managing uh, resources uh, that's completely, it's not tied to Cloud Foundry, even though we did it out of the, the Cloud Foundry Foundation. Uh, and from that, we can essentially manage any API surfaced endpoint. Uh, so we can look at Cloud Foundry resources, we can look at Kubernetes resources, uh, essentially anything that can be surfaced in a catalog and presents itself as an API that that uh, user interface uh, can manage. So we can look through a catalog, we can deploy the resources, it can scale uh, dynamically, uh, add resources, take away resources, 
uh, and it's all driven by the the user's uh, uh, identity as far as what they see, what catalogs they see. So, you know, with that, we can, you know, a customer that's using that interface in our cloud application platform can manage applications that are deployed um, across Azure, Amazon, on-prem, um, IBM Cloud with Cloud Foundry, uh, pure Kubernetes um, applications. Uh, and so it's a, you know, really, like I say, I think some of these standards and, and the open source, and it just comes back to how's open source fueling uh, DevOps. You know, all of these are open source projects. Uh, and I think it's the open source aspect and the collaboration aspect that really enable that. Yeah, it's interesting to me too, just uh, from the standpoint that, you know, you're talking about having a graphical user interface for managing this stuff. And uh, I don't remember if you were there, Nell, or not, but uh, we did an interview with the folks from IBM about KUI, which is, you know, it's it's kind of a graphical slash CLI system for for managing resources in, in, you know, in another way. And it seems like that's where a lot of this is headed, you know, just to kind of uh, pile on on, hey, you know, some of this is going to get easier, some of it's going to get more visual, we're going to be able to, you know, kind of uh, figure out what's going on. You know, we're seeing other tools like this come and solve this same problem. And, and I'm really kind of excited about that, because some of it's a little bit painful. I think all of us are at least all of our managers are looking for that single pane of glass view yes. uh, into all of the infrastructure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Go One ahead, other Jeff. thing that I'm wondering, you know, along the lines of Nell asking, okay, what's coming in the next in the next decade, some of it's going to be this kind of a thing, right? Where it's, we're going to make what we have easier, we're going to make what we have better. Um, are we going to see something kind of come up and supplant, you know, the, the Kubernetes or Docker way of doing things, you know, in, a, in the same way that Kubernetes and Docker kind of did that to uh, virtual machines and things like that? Um. You know, you would never say no in this industry because things come uh, so sure. quickly. But but uh, I think for, you know, the foreseeable future, you know, particularly those that, that you know, want to develop applications and, and build an infrastructure uh, that is, is durable uh, and, and can be counted on for, you know, several generations of, of applications. I think that will be the de facto standard. Now, the one that's, Kind of coming in there, and I would I wouldn't say supplanting, I would say complementing, is the function as a service or serverless, depending upon how you right. want to you refer to it. Uh, and I think that will gain traction. I mean, we're all you know looking at, at integrating that you know with our with our products, but I think it's going to be done in such a way that uh, it complements and is workable in the same ecosystem in the in the same management uh, ecosystem versus being a completely discrete uh, environment. Uh, you know, I think that, I think our customers are just going to demand that because you're saying, okay, that was a great experiment for the for the nineteen or for twenty twelve to twenty twenty. But here for 21 to 26, let's try this model. Uh, you know, enterprises aren't gonna aren't gonna take that. Uh, so while I think there's some great productivity uh, and efficiency uh, gains that are coming in in functions as a service, I think we're gonna do it in a, in a manner that's more consistent and less disruptive 
than uh, other technologies. I very much agree. I, I, you know, it's not uncommon to see on Twitter someone saying, well, why would I learn Kubernetes when everything's going to learn service or everything's going to go to serverless in five years? And the answer is, I mean, serverless does a lot, but you still, and if I just want to run a function, a one-off or repeated functions, that's fine, but I still need to persist the result of that function somewhere. I need to do yeah. something with that function. Exactly. So there, there will be other infrastructure involved in whatever application yeah. or technology I'm working on. Yeah, I think the you know you bring up a great point now with the uh, the comment about uh, uh, persistence in that you know everything that we do uh, about our our lives, our daily lives, about what businesses are about uh, is about persisting transactions, right? You know, and you know I want my bank account to update properly when I get my paycheck or when I when I try and buy something online, I want to pay for my things with my credit, you know, my credit card bill. I don't want to get somebody else's bill. Uh, so, you know, while there's many activities and, and events that, that don't have to be persistent, can be ephemeral, uh, at the end of the day, much of what happens, most of what happens in, the, in our daily lives has to have some aspect of persistence. Um, and so, you know, just a function as a service to carry out something quickly. Absolutely. Uh, but I, I think that's where it's a complement um, to the con evolving container ecosystem as containers get better at persistence and can become that, uh, uh, you know, the system of record uh, transactional systems. Yeah. The other thing that I'm seeing, though, is that a lot of serverless runs on that container architecture. And so as the container architecture mm -hmm. improves, so does the serverless architecture. Right. Yeah. And like I said, I think that's, that's another example of how they're going to be complementary um, and grow together. Uh, and, and we'll just, like I say, hopefully the customers hold us accountable uh, for not, you know, churning their lives uh, any more than we need to. Have you heard of Atwood's Law? He says that anything that can be built in JavaScript eventually will be built in JavaScript, and that includes mobile apps. You can build awesome mobile apps and Apple TV and other apps with React Native. Come check us out every week as we talk about some of the ins and outs of building mobile apps with JavaScript and with React on React Native Radio. You can find it at reactnativeradio.com. Something I noticed when we were preparing for the show is there's videos, podcasts, et cetera, that you've done where you've talked about edge to core to cloud. Uh, could you tell us a little more about what that yeah. means? Yeah, absolutely. So what I see is edge to core to cloud, and it actually fits this, this topic very well, is that you know, each domain it grew up in its own world in, in really an isolated fashion. Uh, you know, the core data center obviously has been around for a long time, but as the clouds emerge, Clouds having their own tool sets, uh, their their own interfaces, their own infrastructure, um, and then as Edge is coming online, uh, you know, seeing specific Edge tool sets and Edge development kits, etc. And you know, my vision and, and view of this is that we need to create um, a consistent platform, if you will, from Edge to core to cloud. So if I'm writing an application um, or deploying that application, that I can do that to to some degree, to a large degree, independent of where the target is. I can use the tools that the application needs, um, and I can deploy and manage those um, wherever it needs to be. So I could do development 
you know, in the cloud. And then I could push that application to the edge. Um, and when they're running at the edge, you know, I may have some aspects of it sitting at the edge, but it needs to be communicating with, with aspects that are, that are in the core data center or in the cloud. And it's, it's relatively easy for those applications to interact, for data to move from one location to the other. Uh, and so it's all about edge to core to cloud is all about creating a consistent platform and a consistent set of management tools that can manage them wherever uh, the application and the infrastructure resides. And, and a lot of the work that we're doing with, with our infrastructure, whether it goes back to SLES uh, and or our containers, uh, we just have one code set um, of an operating system. So if you want to run on an ARM Raspberry Pi on an edge uh, device uh, monitoring industrial equipment, um, or you want to run a high-performance computing cluster or run an app in the cloud, uh, run SAP mission critical in the cloud, um, we have one operating system that runs it all and one management tool that can manage all of those regardless of where they are and keep the security uh, synced. So at the platform level, that's what we're doing to try to drive that consistency. And now at the application delivery level, with containers and our cloud application platform and cloud foundry, um, we can do that same thing. So we can push an application uh, to wherever it needs to land. Uh, whether you want to push an application to a uh, hundred edge locations uh, and have make sure that that gets deployed consistently, the security and the implementation is is consistent across all those locations. Um, we can do that, and and that can actually have elements of that application could be uh, simultaneously deployed to reside in Azure or Amazon and the, the network configured to connect uh, the two uh, federated worlds uh, together. Uh, and so that at the application delivery level uh, is kind of delivering that uh, consistent edge to core to cloud. I like that a lot. I mean, we, we often think of the cloud as this big ephemeral thing, but one of the types of data I've dealt with is voter data. And it's different from state to state about where that uh, where that data needs to reside. And it's very strict rules. And you can even go internationally and you deal with data sovereignty and such. I mean, the idea that I could be in compliance with all of those laws, all those principles, but still have one view into my application as a whole, that really appeals to me. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's critical in today's kind of business climate and, and uh, social climate to your point on, um, you know, where's my data uh, and who, who can see it and, and who has access to it. All right. Well, is there anything else we'd like to chat about before we uh, take this to a close? Um, I, I just have one more question, and that is, so, I mean, I remember back in the day when SUSE was essentially, hey, we've got this Linux distribution and all of the things around it. And now we're talking about, you know, the DevOps ecosystem and all of the tools and things that SUSE provides for folks working in the cloud. So what is there anything coming from SUSE over the next while that you want to let us know to kind of keep an eye out for? Because it, it seems like there's this progression that you've gone through. Yep. And yeah, what's next? So, yeah, what's next for SUSE is, is many things. Um, are on the plate. You know, we're working across the company in, in our whole portfolio of application delivery and, and filling that out. 
and uh, just on our, on our traditional uh, compute and storage infrastructure and our software defined storage product. So, you know, I think if we, if somebody were to look back, as you said, what SUSE looked like in the last decade, we don't look like that anymore. And if you look forward three years, uh, what we will look like at that point, you know, we've got a, a corporate goal um, to double in size um, over wow. a three-year period, which is which is extremely aggressive. Um, and uh, the whole organization is excited about uh, you know how we're going about that and and what's in front of us. So you know when you when we come back and do this in a, in a couple of years uh, and look back, it'll look like a very different company. Uh, once again, but we absolutely are, are 100% in on this application delivery and cloud native computing and, and bringing, uh, you know, that to the masses and, and being a, a competitive player in that space. Nice. All right. Well, thank you so much, Brent, for joining us. Uh, fantastic to have you on the show. And let's go ahead and move on to picks. Uh, picks are something we do every show where we each highlight a couple of things we found useful, uh, technical or non-technical uh, throughout our week or throughout our lives. Uh, I'll go ahead and start. And my pick, as soon as I saw who we were interviewing on the show or where you were from, from Sousa, I knew I had to pick the soundtrack to Seussical the Musical, uh, which is fantastic. <laughs> it's very charming. It's from, I think the late 1990s is when it premiered. But if you're looking for, if you like musicals, even if you don't like musicals, if you like Dr. Seuss, if you don't like Dr. Seuss, very whimsical, very touching, highly recommend it. And that's my only pick for today. Uh, Chuck, what about you? Man, Seussical the Musical. What what a great show. I will have to look that up. So I'm, yeah. I'm not familiar with it. Yeah, well, well worth it if you get a chance to go see it. I think I've seen it a couple of times at kind of the community theater level, but it's it's a lot of fun. Um boy, I I'm trying to think what I want to pick because I, I wasn't quite we've done three of these this week and I don't want to repeat myself. <laughs> One pick that I have, and this is something that I've always wanted, but uh, I am not going to be getting anytime soon, is a whisper room. So if you're not familiar with it, it's basically a sound isolation booth. Um, and the reason is, is because I have five kids that, you know, that when they're at home, uh, getting a quiet space to record a podcast is hard. And my microphone filters enough of it out to where it's not a major problem. But... Um, I had to kind of take it up to another level because I scheduled some time to record an audio book and I'm going to be submitting that to Audible and they won't accept it if it has, you know, even the kind of faint, you know, artifacts of my kids screaming and then usually the culprits, my 14 year old, I'll admit. So, yeah, so it it's just something that I've always kind of wanted. So I've been looking at some other options for soundproofing and um it turns out that there are really a lot of great options out there. So if you want to go and look some of them up, you can. Um, one of them is uh, people tend to put rock wool into their walls. So I'm picking whisper rooms. I'm also picking rock wool, which is just something you can go get at the hardware store. Um, and then there's also the sound foam that eliminates echo. And so you can get some of that too. And then finally, I'm also looking at getting some rigid foam that I can put into my window. So I just cut it out the shape of my window and just slide it in there because it's right in front of me. Because that was the other problem was I waited until my kids were at school and then somebody was out there banging on their car or something. I don't know what it was, but, it, you know, the wham, wham, wham during the audiobooks was just not a go. So 
anyway, um, those are some soundproofing options that I've been looking at. And uh, I, I guess one last pick, um, and this is something that I'm just starting now, is I'm starting a new podcast called MVP for Marketing Via Podcasts. Um, I get a lot of questions from our sponsors about how to how to sponsor a podcast. And yeah, I want to make sure that, you know, those questions get answered. So yeah, I've been looking at some, uh, some options for just answering some of those questions. And it also gives me something to talk about with sponsors when I email them and say, Hey, are you interested in supporting the shows? So anyway, um, so those are my picks. Awesome. And your picks made me think a little bit of that video that went around a few years ago of the dad who was being interviewed on the BBC <laughs> live about North Korea and his kids come uh, wandering into the room making a sound of noise. Yeah, you see his wife kind of sneak in and kind of crawl in behind him and fish the kids out. Yeah, the best thing is the look of horror that comes over his face Well, there's absolutely nothing he can do. <laughs> yeah, and then there's, the, there's a parody video that you should also check out that... Uh, it's this lady and it's like, well, if a woman had been on the show and True. and she like pulls dinner out of the oven and disarms a bomb and a bunch of stuff. Anyway, it was pretty funny. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, Brent, how about you? What are your picks? Yeah, you know, the, the my pick of the week um, or maybe the month um, is some is Lewis Pugh. I don't know if you guys know of Lewis. He's a the United Nations patron of the ocean. So he's a well-known endurance athlete that has done, uh, that's all about uh, climate change and, and what's going on with the oceans. And uh, we recently had him speak at a, a, an internal SUSE uh, event. Uh, and I'll tell you, he's probably one of the most inspiring uh, individuals I've ever uh, had the opportunity to, to listen to. And he's got a couple of books out. One of them is Achieving the Impossible, uh, which is a, a great read. So uh, if you've not heard of Lewis, definitely look him up. Um, his first notable uh, event that he did was he was the one that swam um, across the North Pole to prove to to bring awareness to climate change and the melting of the what's happening with the oceans and and so forth. Uh, so, you know, he went, he told us the story uh, of preparing for that and, and actually doing it. And it's just, uh, uh, you know, we think we have challenges um, in our lives or are taking on hard tasks. That's uh, uh, hearing him tell that story is, is absolutely amazing and, and makes you believe that nothing is impossible. So it's a, a great read and, a, and a, an amazing individual to, to follow. I will definitely have to check that out. I'm glad he didn't get eaten by a polar bear. Yeah, I wanted yeah. to make a joke about yeah. Santa living on a houseboat or something. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Man. Right now, that's where Santa would have to be living for sure. Yeah. Yeah, well, and he's got a swim coming up in about two weeks in, in uh, Antarctica. Uh, so it's uh, that's uh, just similar. So, cold. Uh, so miserable. Challenge. Well, with the salt water, so the inter the interesting aspect that you know we hate taking cold showers. The temperature of salt water is like minus one point seven C. Um, when it's at free, you know, it can get that cold before it freezes. Oh, but that was essentially the temperature of the water that he swam a kilometer uh, in uh, on the North Pole. Dang, yeah, that's like what twenty seven, twenty eight degrees. 20, uh, 27, 28 degrees. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, my wetsuit would be so uh, so thick that yeah. I I, you, I would just put a motor on the back and just float along. But yeah, that's amazing. I have to check that out for sure. All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Brent, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being with us today. And have a wonderful week, everyone, when you're hearing this. And we will talk to you soon. Take care. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.